Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now, here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Pawatic. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast, powered by First National. I am Adam Pawatic, your host, along with my esteemed co-host, Aaron Cameron. Our guest today is Lori Payne, VP Development at Diamond Corp. Welcome to the show, Lori. Thank you for having me. We like to always start off these episodes with an overview of how you got to where you are today. So whatever point in your career that kicked off your interest in real estate to you know this very moment on the podcast, if we can get into your background, you really set the stage for the discussion we're going to have today on planning and development. Diamond Corp has been into a lot of high-profile projects, and we'll get into some of those as well. But we like to start at the personal level. So, Laurie, if you give us your background, that would be appreciated. I think I came into real estate kind of by accident, and maybe that's how most people end up here. I was a tree hugger, kind of granola student. And when I went to university, I took forestry at UBC, and I was going to work in the woods and take care of bears and snakes and insects or whatever it was. But in a way, that kind of led me to a planning background because what I studied was really about responsible land management. And so when I realized that I didn't want to live in the bush year round, I switched to starting to study planning, which is again about responsible land management. And so I worked in planning consulting with Urban Strategies, who are a downtown Toronto firm and really doing the opposite of kind of natural land management that I started in and worked on projects that were very urban, downtown centric. I worked in London. I worked in all across the U.S. I worked in cities across Canada doing planning and land management and neighborhood design. From there, I think like most consultants, you get to know your clients very well and the, the interesting things that your clients do. And one of my clients was Toronto Community Housing, which is Toronto's public housing agency and also, I think, the second largest housing provider in North America. So a very big organization and a big organization which also had no cash, not surprisingly. And I was working with them to unlock the value in their lands and in order to generate some cash. First time I really started to think like a developer. So I went over to them and was a developer working with the private sector using land assets that were coming from the public sector. And kind of the story repeated itself again when I went to Diamond Corps because they were on the other side of a deal that I was doing with Toronto Community Housing. And you start to get to know the players in the industry, how they behave, what their ethic is, how successful they are, the types of projects they take on. So I went to Steve Diamond and said, hey, you're kind of doing the thing that I find interesting and you do it in a way that reflects the values that are important to me of honesty, public service, integrity. And so we found a fit that worked for the two of us. This is a rhetorical question, and I'll preface it with, and you can, you know, this is all online. I ran for the Green Party you know, years and years ago, so I'm coming from an honest position. But how do you balance your spiritual environmentalism with your capitalistic brain? Uh, sometimes you don't, I think. But I try. I probably am less successful than I would like to be. I hope that I'll be able to tap into more of what I had in my youth of that real commitment. I mean, I used to carry, when I first started at Urban Strategies, I used to carry plastic containers with me to work. 
and bring them to the Queen Street restaurants that I was ordering lunch from and make them put it in my container so that I could go back to the office and eat my lunch. I'm not a good lunch packer, so I always buy. And that was very strange to a lot of retailers on Queen Street in, I don't know, 2003 when I was doing that. I don't think it would be strange now as much. But look, we can all do better. We all do better. But I think in reality, what I do, and I work in the urban environment, almost all infill situations, almost all very high-density, transit-oriented, that are doing the things and creating the kinds of environments that are more sustainable, more livable, healthier for people, and bring in the other piece of the puzzle, which is the equity lens. And not to say that we are a charitable organization or that we are doing everything we are doing altruistically. We're here to make money and turn a profit like anybody else. But most of our projects have affordable housing as a component, for instance. Like I said, they're all almost all around transit, lots of heritage preservation, doing our part to contribute and doing what I believe is very good planning. And that gives back economically, of course, but also socially and in design. You know, Lori, I want to get into it. We are going to get into different projects and such. But before we go there, why don't we just explain a little bit about what your current role is and what you do for Diamond Corp? Sure. So I oversee the development team. And I think to understand what that means, you have to understand a little bit about what Diamond Corp is as a company and where it comes from. Steve Diamond, who's our founder and CEO, comes from a municipal law background, was one of the top municipal lawyers in Toronto. And in fact, he wouldn't have known who I was at the time, but we certainly came across each other on projects where he was acting for clients that we were also acting for. And so the company itself started from a place of focusing on entitlements and didn't actually build out land on its own. Very politically astute and knowledgeable about policy and taking on things that other people wouldn't because they were too complicated to entitle or understand or to deal with politically. So we have a very large, by comparison, development team, people who are planners or have a background in law or other fields that help with that front-end entitlement process and de-risking land. And I oversee that team now, some of the best in the city at doing that kind of thing. And a lot of our partners choose us because we offer value in the riskiest part of the development process, which is the upfront entitlement. So I I work with a team of professionals and with our partners, focused primarily on the entitlements, but also in the site acquisitions and handing over good projects to our construction teams or those who are on the delivery side of things. You rhymed off a number of the reasons why you thought that Diamond Corp would be a good fit. Can you comment any more on Steve Diamond? You know, I'm sure that many in the industry have seen him on panels. And can you talk about you know working with Steve? Oh, it's great. I mean, I think there's a lot of reasons why he and I work well together. Part of it, I think, is what you see is what you get. Mind you, he does it with a lot more civility than I do. Because I'm more of a bull in the china shop, as my husband would say, who's a very soft-spoken man. Steve is much more gentle and civilized than I am. But but also with him, it's what you see is what you get. And he has an exceptional ability. And if I knew exactly how he does it, I would be much better at my job. But he has an exceptional ability to convince people and bring people on side and to disarm conflict 
that is an absolute essential in our business and particularly the projects that we work with. And that's where he, all three levels of government agree to make him the chair of Waterfront Toronto, for instance. Those kind of things don't happen for most people. It's a unique and special gift and it permeates the company. And I think it probably even stems from his father, though I never had the chance to meet him, who was also in real estate development and one of the founders, I believe, of Cadillac Fairview. So the whole family and and their philosophy permeates the company. And it's really nice. I think you just answered my question, but I'll ask it anyway. And maybe this is two parts. And Laura, you can decide where you want to go with this. But Diamond Corp typically doesn't seem to just lead or do their own thing. They're always in partnership. I mean, we can, when we'll get into some of the projects, but in my mind, whenever I see your name, there's other developers, other partners. And maybe that's a testament to Steve just being the way he is, but maybe just talk to what that philosophy is and why it is that you seem to always just look for participants in your projects. It's true. We partner on all projects to date, almost all, I think. Partially, I think it starts from the origins of the fund. And in the first fund, we're on the fourth fund now, a Diamond Core is a private equity fund. So in the first fund, it was structured such that land had to be disposed before it was developed. So we entitled the land, raised the value, and sold it. That was how the company got its start. And so projects like 57 Fedina, that was a partnership with Tricon, once we had the lands entitled, they would, Tricon took that over and developed it on its own. Um, often, we would start in partnership with somebody and the partners, both partners would collectively decide to sell the land in or enter into an agreement right from the beginning that knew we were going to sell land at the end. Over time, we've evolved such that the... In our fourth fund, there are projects that we're building out on our own as part of the new branch of the company called Diamond Kilmer, which is a partnership with Kilmer. Again, the theme of partnership, it's always there. But it also, what it does is allow us to bring the expertise of others into the partnership. So where people may have expertise in rental development, which we don't typically do, or in construction of high rise, which we don't do, those partners come in and perform whatever functions are most useful to the needs of the project. It also gets you access I've got a question, to much I guess it's really... more interesting lands. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, those is, you do have some very interesting, hard to get land on your resume. It's pretty impressive. You know, on the topic of partners, of course, you know, they're bringing, you know, their capital to the table. But uh, I know as I saw from your website that I think Diamond Corp's got $650 million in equity in play. Maybe it's even more now because websites tend to get out of date pretty quick. But how do you raise that kind of capital for what would be, I assume, shorter-term hold periods, likely a higher yield expectation? So I think I touched on briefly at the beginning, Diamond Corp is a private equity fund. So private investors invest in each fund. That provides our share of the equity. Almost in all situations, our partners are providing some equity into a project as well. I mean, you know, and that fund will purchase four or five or six sites, however much they have assets for. And again, fund once started as much smaller, bought land held for a very limited point of time. And as projects got more complex, the need for larger funds and longer time periods. You know, Lori, I mean, why your fund and not, Another one. Why not Kingset or Timber Creek or you know somebody else? Like, what's the what's the differentiator? The elevator pitch, right? I, Is that what we're looking for? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's our good looks. Didn't you? Uh, that should be obvious. <laughs> you know, look, and lots of people are in multiple funds, but I think what before my time even 
what fund one and fund two proved was incredible returns to investors. Part of the fund structure is organized around things where people thought there was a gap in the market. For example, those who specialize in entitlement. So we've oriented our fund to people who want to see relatively quick returns, want to see lay and move, want to see high returns, high risk, high return projects. And our expertise in managing high risk projects and getting the results, which are now proven, is what attracts investors. And they keep coming back fund between from fund one to fund four. Many of the investors have stayed the same. I've got a question about uh, COVID-19 and fundraising, and it's probably worth mentioning to the course. It is June 29th right now. Anything to do with COVID-19 deserves a timestamp for relevance. But have you been raising funds at any point after you know late February, or, or has there been any turbulence in that arena? We got really lucky with timing. So we're in the midst of fund four. We're still acquiring properties. We still have committed investors. Nothing's changed on that front. So we haven't had to address the fundraising question in this period until we fill up fund four. So we got quite lucky. We had some sales right before the crisis hit. We were in process and purchased things right before the crisis hit. And so we're moving through that. And I mean, I think ultimately it's about time period and the work that we do typically takes five to 10 years to come to fruition. Some of them on the big sites like the well and the project we did on the celestial lands take much longer than that. And so I think my view on what's happening now is what's the world going to be like in two years or three years when our projects are coming to market or when they're starting to occupy And you have to look at the rest of the world and think Toronto is still a good place to be, a great place to be. And that as long as we continue to be open and attractive to people, we'll keep going. We'll go differently. Things will be changed. Maybe suites will change. Maybe pricing will change. Hopefully construction costs come down a little bit. But we will still be here and there will still be a need. And you make decisions as you go. And and try to be as cautious as possible, but without getting into inertia and making decisions out of fear rather than looking at the data and looking at the long-term prospects. You know, Lori, and that's a great segue because, yeah, we are in COVID and we're all sitting at home and you know, recording this in isolation. And I think you know, Adam date stamped it, but I think you know, we're all more or less in quarantine regardless of what's going on outside. And so let me just for context, let's appreciate that your decision making in your particular position is is not three months or six months, it's three years or six years or nine years or 12 years. So I think we'll, we'll try to steer away from the COVID discussion only because I think everybody's sick and tired of it in the first place. But so at least it more- explains why you hear my dog barking in the background. <laughs> That's okay. Oh, don't worry. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, people can't see us, but I'm sitting outside on my front porch and Adam's sitting in a, I don't know, a boathouse somewhere. So we're, I, don't worry, we're all in that. Whoever's listening, they're probably somewhere unusual, not sitting in a cubicle for sure. Let's go site specific. And For our listeners, you guys are predominantly GTA. So let's give some context for those that aren't Toronto centric. You're involved in all sorts of things. You mentioned Steve Diamond being part of Harborfront, which is a, which is a huge development initiative in the east, southeast end of Toronto. Of course, the well, which if I remember correctly, is I think the largest development in Canadian history. And you can correct me if I'm wrong. There's the Celestica site, which is at Eglinton and the Don Valley Parkway, which is an incredibly large and transport connected site. 
And then I think the one that just recently came up was another one in South Mississauga, around on the water at, in Port Credit. And there's probably more. You guys seem to have so much access to some of the best developable lands. Why don't we start with Celestica? Because I know that's one that you're more connected to. But let me just talk about some of the attributes of all of the different projects you guys are involved in and why you guys, I mean, I, I think everybody probably in your organization are so proud to be part of what you guys do. Sure. Celestica is a great example or the Celestica lands because it's an incredible site and most people don't even know it's there. It used to be an old IBM factory. Probably most people recognize it as that, but almost nobody has been on the property. I remember getting stopped by security when I'd go and do my site inspection. So it wasn't a place you were welcomed well, in. Describe entirely- where it is. Describe what it's like. It's like adjacent to the Ontario Science Center, right? Like maybe just give people, even people that live in Toronto, be like, what are they talking about? What site is that? Because unless you really have driven into the Celestica factory or office building, you'd never know it's there. You really wouldn't. So it's at the intersection of Don Milton and Eglinton. And it's right, you're right. It overlooks the Ontario Science Center, which is a place that people know and overlooks the Don Valley. It's actually bound. It's entirely contained private land. 60 acres, which I don't believe there's another 60 acre site in the city of Toronto under development right now. There may be a private land. The Portlands is obviously bigger, but other than that, even the old Lever site that was being developed by First Gulf and now by uh, Cadillac Fairview is smaller, in fact, than the Celestica land. But you wouldn't know it because it has no roads. It fronts two arterials and then there's a CP rail corridor, CN or CP, one of the two, that wraps all the way around it. And it's completely isolated. And it was probably designed that way specifically by IBM to protect their intellectual property or whatever was going on there since the 50s when it was built. And you mentioned that we have a lot of good land and how do we get access to it? Well, There were at least four different offer periods on those lands over the last several years, probably last decade, none of which came to fruition because anybody who started to dig into it realized, okay, there's a whole whack of planning issues. These are designated industrial lands that are protected by the province of Ontario and are very difficult to develop. They're environmentally impacted. 1950s microchip factories tended not to meet today's environmental standards. Or maybe even Um, just the ingress and egress, like just getting in and out of that site. Yeah. Yeah. So very unique. But if you stood at the top of the hill and looked out over, if you're any kind of real estate developer, you would know that this is a gem. And it has clear views down to the water that will never be obstructed. But untangling it and making it developable was a feat. It was the first major employment lands conversion in the city of Toronto. And if you're from Ontario, you would know that employment lands are very difficult to develop for any residential use to protect for jobs and industry in Ontario. But this one, because it's located on the new Eglinton Crosstown line, which is our first major transit expansion in a very long time in Toronto, save for the four stops along the Shepherd line. And it's almost open. It's finishing construction and will be available. I know, I can see that you guys are shocked that I'm saying it's almost open. But did, wait, wait, but I even it. more, did you know, did you know it was coming when you bought the land? Like, were yes, you aware? We okay, okay. Yes, actually, construction hadn't started on the site, but they had the big tunnel boring machines going across the city. Now, look, we all know 
transit planning in Toronto doesn't mean just because they're building a tunnel doesn't mean the thing's actually going to happen. <laughs> yeah. And so we took a risk there too, but it was a major driver in being able to do what we did because we all know if you're going to invest billions in public transit, then you better make good land uses around it. And it, it's really a challenge right now in Toronto, which is mostly built out and we need more transit. It's very hard to locate new people and new jobs near infill transit lines because the lands are often built out. Many of them have single family homes. You know, we're getting the Ontario line, a new subway line in the east side of the city, which will mostly go through built up neighborhoods that are going to be very difficult to change. There are a few spots on there that you can infill, but much of that will stay the same. Lori, well, your, your site as well, the, I mean, the surrounding area, if you look at it in Google Maps, would be virtually built out a lot of low rise and your site would stick out like a sore thumb in terms of the, the potential there. So what was their secret sauce? So if other groups had tried to crack the code on how to make this site work with its challenges, did you have a, a eureka moment that makes this make sense? Or, or what was the, the secret sauce? Gee, so it was three developers who came together, Lifetime, Context, and Diamond Corp. And I'm sure at various points, all three thought, what the hell are we doing with this thing as we were going through the purchasing process and our due diligence? And really, it does come down to due diligence and relationships and making sure that we had checked with people who were in power to make decisions about what they were looking for and how we could satisfy them. Our industry is all about risk, and we had to make calculated decisions about risk but did so on the basis of trust and relationships and doing a lot of research into what's possible and being realistic about the compromises that we would have to make. But you also know that what you start with is never what you end with, especially in a site this large. So we started with a plan to build a couple of towers, an office building, and mostly townhouses. And what you see the lands as now is 5,000 units, a dozen towers, heritage preservation, a hockey arena, 400 units of affordable housing. It is a small town. I was born in Newfoundland and both my parents are from the same small town of 5,000 people. And it's completely self-sufficient. The cross town, which is now what the neighborhood is going to be called, is going to be 10,000 people. And it's going to be a you know, a mid-sized city in Newfoundland. So it's pretty remarkable to be able to do that and to do it with a blank slate. So this the secret be... sauce is the people and, yeah. and knowing your craft. We really know our craft. This may be too mundane, I think, but what does the first square foot buildable on the land end up looking like once you get through all the zoning approvals? What is the value of the land at the end? Yeah, based on uh, what you that... were able to get approved you know, versus what you thought you were paying for it? So, well, most of it is publicly known because Celestica is a publicly traded company. So we bought from Celestica for about $150 million with some bonus provisions in there. And since then, we were engaged in a transaction to the DeGasperis Group, which saw a huge increase in our land values, but one that was earned. It came from taking on all the risk. And I think what is interesting about that is that what happened in the end is Aspen Ridge and Metris, the two DeGasperis companies that we're working with to build out the site, have brought our original partnership on to keep advising them through the development process. And I still work on that site fairly regularly today. I have one staff dedicated full-time to supporting that 
their delivery and the first three towers are getting under construction, the infrastructure is going in. And so there's value to us, there's value to our purchasers, and there's huge value to the public in terms of creating a new village, a new town along the transit line. I I do love this project because it is unique. You're not going to see a lot of opportunities like this in your career to get something as well located and as uh, exceptionally large as this project. But we do want to talk about some of the other stuff you have in the go. Before we started recording, we mentioned a uh, 200 Queens Key. And for people that are not from Toronto, we should probably set the stage on exactly what it is. But Lori, I'll let you do that. Well, I would suggest people, while they're listening, go into Google Maps and put in the address. And what you see on the screen is a really good indication of what's there today, because the entire property is covered by an eight-level parking garage that was built, I don't know, in the 80s. It's an absolute eyesore, and it does nothing for Toronto's waterfront today. And that part of the waterfront is largely developed, has amazing public realm. We are across the street from Harbourfront, and this thing is a vestige of the past from the days when the waterfront was just Harbourfront and nothing else. Now it's a community, it's a neighborhood, it's home to people, it's a destination for people at the convention center or people coming downtown. And the parking garage is now past its prime and needs to go. So what we will be doing is replacing that parking garage with a new public space, with better sidewalks, better bike paths, landscaping, retail, and then on top are two residential towers, 41 and 71 stories. So I think it's a great story about, you know, you asked me in the beginning about being granola and how you reconcile that. Well, taking out parking for 1,100 cars and replacing it with something that is going to be another jewel along the waterfront sounds like pretty good sustainability to me. Yeah, it it is truly. For those not from Toronto, it is well-located would be a very underwhelming way of describing it. It's a phenomenal location right downtown. It does harken back to an era of Toronto when the waterfront had nothing going on. I mean, uh, my dad's a developer and we would drive along that strip and he'd point at all the, you know, at the time underused real estate and he would rant and rave about how it's got to be changed. So I'm glad that here we are just uh, 25 years later to see that it has happened. How far along in that project are you? And when do you see this vision coming to life? We just submitted, actually, that was a little bit of a COVID hang up because we were all ready to go into the city and then City Hall shut down. So we got delayed a couple of months. And now we're kind of one of the first applications into City Hall once City Hall opened up again. We're figuring out how to reach out to our neighbors virtually like everybody else is. We are figuring out how to interface with the city in a situation where normally we would know people before we'd have relationships, now we're starting fresh with a new project and we haven't had the chance to build in-person relationships and we're building virtual ones. And I think for the most part, we're managing and people are really understanding. We've started using online surveys. We've been Zooming like everybody else has. And we've also just tried to exercise a lot of patience and work with city staff to support them as much as we can. And Hopefully, we'll be through the process in 18 months or two years, you know, even sooner if we work hard at it and if things keep going the way they are. I think it's in everybody's interest to keep productivity moving on the development front in Toronto. Our city is clearly dependent on it. And if we didn't know that before, we certainly know it now. And, you know, it was interesting when we 
we were planning to make our submission, we called the counselor's office to say, hey, we're ready. As soon as we're allowed, we'll come in. And Counselor Cressy, who's the counselor in this area, his assistant said to us, you know, it's really nice to think about something that's positive that's going to happen in the future. And I'm very lucky in this job to always think about positive things coming in the future. And that's what I've tried to focus on. I've kind of grabbed that idea from her and carried it through. That was probably mid-April when we were all feeling a little down and beaten up. And I'd actually just gotten home from a trip to Hawaii and got sick on my way home. I don't think it was COVID. Maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. But I lived in the basement for three weeks by myself in the dark. And so to hear her talk about planning for the future was inspiring to me too. You know, Lori, I was going to ask a question about specific developments, but your recent comment about just your interaction with government and development, planning development staff. Maybe just talk about your strategy when you're engaged in that next community or that next submission to the city and what you do differently. How do you try to make sure that you have the approvals of the different layers of government that you need to get your vision built properly? Well, I'm giving away trade secrets, but I'll do it for you guys. I think the first thing is really knowing what their rules are and how you are or aren't achieving them. Because you don't have to achieve their all their rules, or at least in my opinion, you don't. They may think differently. But I think you need to understand and respect where they're coming from and what they're trying to achieve. And if you bear that in mind, then you'll shape your plans around that and you'll communicate and negotiate with that in mind. And I, frankly, it's the same way I take on a negotiation on a development deal too is trying to put yourself in their shoes, understand what they're coming from and are trying to achieve and try to find the way to get what you want and they want at the same time. I've talked a lot about That's relationships. advice for a good marriage, really. The same, well, the I can use some of that advice too. But I'm sure my husband would say that. <laughs> and again, I think I said earlier, we know our craft and we do. And so we aren't going in with things that aren't researched and that don't understand the context in which we're operating. I think there's a lot of projects that come in that haven't done that work and don't understand where they fit in a bigger picture and a bigger objective. So I think that's part of it. I think I used to do, I started out, my first job was doing public consultation. I was a third party facilitator. And one of the things I learned from that is never say something that you know you can't deliver and that isn't true. And So if I'm not able to deliver what they're asking for, then I call it up front. I don't pretend that or hope I can sneak it by, but I'd be prepared to justify a perspective that we're coming from. And sometimes we agree, sometimes we don't. When I worked in public housing, it was the very same thing. And those were the toughest meetings and the best meetings that I'd ever went through. But we were moving people from their homes and trying to stand up in front of them and explain why your project is something they should support really required a lot of honesty about what you can and cannot do. So I think that's part of it. And I think we just, you know, it's COVID era. We just got to be nice to each other. We got to respect each other. We got to try to help each other out. Yeah, well said. I I know Adam and I both agree. On that same vein then, you know, Laura, maybe just talk about the importance of ESG for your organization, how you try to, I guess, melded into all the decision-making and, and all of your developments and use maybe it's affordability, maybe it's environmental. I'm not really sure, but what is what is the most important part? How do you really make sure that you're focused on it and keep it profitable? I mean, that's the hardest part, right? To marry those two things. 
you have to first tell me what ESG is. I'm very non-corporate, so uh, what does that stand uh, for? Environmental sustainability and governance. Okay. So I'll just start with the thing you said last, which is, it's very hard to bring the two together. And I think what Diamond Core's experience has been and my experience across my career is it's actually easier if you can bring the two together. That we increase our returns to investors. We increase what we're able to do with the land because we also incorporate things that are good things to do for others or for the communities that we're operating in. We have a responsibility where we're developing to develop things that are going to make a contribution over time. Buildings stick around for a very long time. I don't want to be responsible for one that does damage. And I don't think the people I work for want to do that either. But in recognizing that, I think we get higher yields on all of our sites. I think we get through the process faster. I think we get the support that we need from our stakeholders. And I think then that translates into higher returns for our investors and investments that they can be proud of, as well as make them profitable. I think part of it, of course, is just ESG is coming table stakes at this point, which they're somewhat eradicates the question of trying to make it profitable as everybody's participating in it, then it's just, you know, I say cost of doing business, even though, of course, it does have, you know, societal good. Before the table, I Lori, I want to ask some you people are under project. But... And it, okay, it's not, maybe it's that I have a rose-colored view of, of the world in that sense. I would agree that maybe that comment was a little glib, but at least you can see that maybe we're headed in that direction as an industry, mm-hmm. which is great to see. I do want to ask you about one more project before I let you go tonight. I'll tell you why. It's the Five Thieves Project, and I'll explain to the listeners why it's called the Five Thieves This is Midtown Toronto, very affluent area. There's five retailers in a row who are renowned for their extremely high prices. And so people call them the Five Thieves, although they are constantly lined up. And I actually have a personal connection to the Five Thieves. When I was 22 or 3, I worked for one of them for a while, delivering very expensive food around the city. And at the time, of course, I did not have an eye for real estate, but now I can see what a site that it is. While the area is well-to-do, this would be by far one of the biggest developments in the area. So how do you manage the neighbor relationships, especially when it might be a highly vocal group of people that don't want to see an area disturbed significantly? So first of all, I think our marketing people would say we don't call it the five thieves. We call that project (laughs) Scrivener Square. And I think, you know, there's a marketing name coming out too. I think but I love those shops and I actually frequent most of them pretty regularly, especially now with buying local means even more to me, I think. But the project is, as you say, a fairly significant one. There are across the street a number of condos there. And you failed to mention that it's probably the best LCBO in the city also right on the property. So that one I do frequent from time to time. (laughs) So we are building a condo tower on top of those retail stores. And those retail stores are in a lovely heritage building that on top of it has kind of one of Toronto's signature Italian restaurants as well. So it's a beloved spot for everybody in the neighborhood and is not that far from our office. And we are having lunch at Tironi all the time as well. So there was a lot of interest and a solid commitment to protecting those stores throughout the process and protecting those buildings as important heritage elements in the neighborhood. And so that is what's happening. We're partnered, tying back to your question on partnerships, we're partnered with RioCan on the retail component of it and with Tricon on the residential component. So there's a residential tower going on top. 
And, you know, I think the theme through our discussion has been about honesty, relationships, and making a positive contribution in the work that you do. So we hired architects out of Denmark, Kobe architects, who are now working on several projects around the city. The tower is exceptional. We knew it had to be because it it was visible from a fair number of important landmarks in the city. The retail is retained and protected. New connections are in place. And the other key component you mentioned is that there's a lot of invested neighborhood groups around the area. There's the immediate condo dwellers who we worked with very closely, as well as the neighborhood organizations. And it took a lot of patience and time on everybody's part to come up with the right solution. But it got there and got there with everybody feeling good, I think, at the end of it. I mean, obviously, I can't speak for everybody. But the general sense is that a positive one and a great piece of architecture. And now you see that other areas or other parts of Young Street are getting investment and there's real estate activity on the heels of our work at Scrivener Square. So we are kind of pioneers there as well. I would say generally, though, I often say to residents when they ask me, as I said, I used to develop public housing. So I got lots of questions about stigma and impact of development on neighborhoods. And I said, There is not a chance that anything I do here will not improve your values. And the same is true at Scrivener Square as anywhere else, is reinvesting in main streets, in transit-oriented places. There is a transit station right there, probably one of the lowest used in the city that we are building new connections to. That is a good thing for neighborhoods and needs to keep happening. Young Street is not what it used to be in terms of activity, but is seeing a resurgence as new people and new development takes place. So I think it'll be a positive contribution all the way around. You know, Laura, that brings me to an interesting thought about NIMBYism, not in my backyardism, and just the neighborhoods being against development. And it feels like to me anyway that that's slowly changing. I don't know. What's your experience as a developer? Are you, are you feeling like the social construct is starting to come around more or is it still really a battle depending on where you're trying to develop? It does depend on the neighborhood, I think. I really, one of the things I'm conscious of in anywhere that we work is who is it that I'm hearing from and do they reflect the broader interests of the neighborhood? And in most cases, they do not. The people with the greatest voice are the people who always have the greatest voice. Those with the greatest wealth, the greatest connections, you know, people of a certain age and of a certain skin color tend to be more frequently represented in these kinds of things. And I think that we're starting to see that change. I think we see that public government approval agencies are making an effort to ensure that all perspectives are represented, not only those with the loud voice who have the time to come to meetings or to hire a lawyer and send in a letter. And so I do see that changing because I think where we see voices in favor are from a more diverse group than we typically see get involved. So young people who are struggling to afford are looking for new investment in the city and the places they want to live. And that only comes with volume. We have to build a significant scale to address affordability. And I think we're hearing from shop owners who know the need for investment to support a local economy and local businesses that we just talked about. And so by reflecting those voices and a broader interest in where the city's needs to go, we'll get better decisions. And I think that is happening. 
I think there's still most people who come out, it takes a lot of effort and time to come out and share your opinion. And if you're in favor, you're probably unlikely to do that. So we mostly, by nature of how it works, hear from those people who are concerned. I hope more people start engaging now that we have new tools and new mechanisms that we're going to use that are more accessible, maybe more accessible. We'll have to be careful about that, that we hear from a broader perspective of people. But I do think it's incumbent on government and the regulatory bodies of making sure that the right decisions are being made, not just because of the interests of a small few, but in the broader interest. That's hard to do, but it, it's necessary. Well said. I mean, I think it's just a consistent and continuous challenge for developers to have those community discussions and make sure that everybody's voices are heard. Lori, wonderful conversation. Thanks so much for participating today and taking the time with us. We really enjoyed it. Very, very interesting. And I think your organization is one of those few that everybody really kind of respects. And I think based on my conversation, our conversation with you today, I, I have a little bit better understanding as to why. So thank you again, Lori. Thank you to First National for powering the podcast, of course. Thank you to Informa for introducing us to Lori and setting this up. And thanks for our listeners and thanks to Adam. Thanks, everybody. Thank you, guys. Thank you for listening to the CRE podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.